In 1 Samuel 8, we have Samuel and his house in decay. Israel asks God for a king and God judging them in granting this request. Hear now the reading of God's inspired word, profitable for us. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now, therefore, hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. <coughs> he will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields, and your vineyards, and your olive yards, and the best of them, and give them to his servants, and he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day, because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king, 
And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. Thus far the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verses 1 through 5, we have, as I mentioned, the decay of Samuel and his son's corruption, giving an occasion to request a king. Samuel was old, we're taught in verse 1, not able to go on his circuit riding as he did once before, as we saw in chapter 7. And note there in verse 1, it says that Samuel in his old age made his sons judges over Israel. Now, if you recall from our whole course of reading the book of Judges, do you remember, tell me, just one judge who made his son judge in his place? You know, they tried this, actually. They tried it with Gideon. They wanted his sons to rule over them, and he refused. No, I'm not going to be your king, and I'm not going to have my kids rule over you. Here, Samuel, without law from God, without precedent in the judges, acts, it seems, on his own initiative. It does not even seem that he inquires of God. Where does it say he prayed? Samuel, the man of prayer, where is he? Do we hear of him praying? Lord, should I do this? No. He just does it in his dotage, in his old age. I note then this doctrine. The best of men will have flaws, blind spots, and moral failures. We see this in his sons as well. <clears throat> Samuel is a great man. He is a godly man. He is a man for us to imitate. His life is a book where we can read the laws of God in many instances, but he is yet a man. Let us humble ourselves. Let us exalt none but Christ. Do we think we are great and godly? Think twice. Do we think highly of men and exalt them in our minds? Don't do it. Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ who was perfect in every way. Let us also strive to see our blind spots, to repent of our moral failures, not sacrifice God's rights for the sake of fulfilling what is good in our own eyes. Notice there verse 2. This is very sad. He has sons Joel and Abiah. Now in God's providence, we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 33, that the son of Joel, who though he was a wicked man, was He-Man, a singer, the son of Joel, the son of Shemuel. He-Man, you remember from Psalm 88. He was a godly man entrusted with the worship of God in the temple by David, but also note an author under God's inspiring spirit of Psalm 88. A wicked father, a godly grandfather. This often happens in the Bible. They were judges, we are taught in verse 2, in Beersheba. Now, it is possible that Beersheba was the seat of their government or their judging. It could have also been that they had the jurisdiction to the south, which is where Beersheba was, whereas Samuel himself had the jurisdiction to the north. If you'll remember, Ramah's right about halfway between Dan in the north and Beersheba in the south. So it's possible that he cut back and curtailed his uh, judgments to only that jurisdiction in the north, giving to his sons that of the south. His sons, though, it describes in very unfavorable terms. 
First it says, his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre. Now it's interesting, walking is a pathway. Here's Samuel's way, he walks this way. Now, as they walk in Samuel's path, what do they do? They turn aside out of the way. They don't follow in the footsteps of their father. He set a good example, they did not follow it. What did they follow after? What did they turn aside, bend after? Remember when Balaam had a plan for his ass and he's driving it this way and it turned aside, that's what they did. They go out of the way, here's the way, walk in it. No, we wanna go this way. It's the same verb. They go after lucre, we are taught. This refers to riches or unjust gain, Strong's says concerning this Hebrew term. Something even acquired by violence. Now Samuel will protest to the people, he did no such thing. Chapter 12, verse 3, we'll look at this God willing in a few weeks. He's going to say, I have stolen or coveted no man's goods, none whatsoever. He said, if I stole anything of yours, come and show it right now. He could say that, his sons could not. Godly men, I note, may have wicked sons. Wicked men may have godly sons. We see this in the example of Joel, the son of Samuel, and his son Heman, who was an author of scripture. This is a rebuke then to simplistic expectations. Some people expect doom and gloom. None of our children will be believers. Our children are little heathens. Some are naive. Oh, I'll presume they're regenerated and just be blind to the fact that they're wicked and disobedient. No, God says neither. Neither of those are the case. It is true that godly men may have wicked sons and we're not really taught what exactly was the problem. It doesn't say that there was some major flaw in Samuel. One thing you could say is he went on circuit and he came home to Ramah each year. So how often was he with his sons? Well, maybe not as much as he should. We don't actually know that. There's no specific condemnation. But we can know that God is sovereign and we must not have either doom and gloom or naivete in our expectation of our children. Fathers, in exhortation from this, let us hope in God's promises. Let us hope in his word of promise. Let us employ the means that he has designed. What has God said are the means by which he fulfills those promises. Is it just, look, I got a promise for you, now you're on your own. Is that what God says to fathers? No. He says, I have a promise for you that I will save you and your household. Then you know what else he says? If you love your child and you want to deliver him from hell, what do you have to do? You have to spank him. You have to use the rod. God has appointed means and he says rebuke. The rod and rebuke give wisdom. Words and spankings, those two give wisdom. And you deliver your child from hell by those means. God also says for fathers to pray with and for their children, to lead them in worship, to teach them the fear of God, to show them the statutes of God. Yes, there are promises, but there are also precepts. And we must not expect God to fulfill his part, so to speak, if we do not fulfill ours. We must obey his precepts. We must believe his promise. Children, if you have godly parents, follow them in what is good. 
Look at the stain on Joel and Abiah here. He sets a pathway for them to walk in. So easy, isn't it? They have a path set before them. They see dead walking in it. What do they do? They turn aside. They don't walk in his ways. They're covetous. The root of all evil is the love of money. Here they are greedy, coveting, and wanting things, and so they go aside from the godly way of their father. If you have godly parents, follow them in what is good. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. You see, my parents are sinners, and they do things that they shouldn't, and they tell me not to do. Yeah? So what? Does that mean you shouldn't do a good thing because your parents fail? No, and as a matter of fact, the Bible requires of you to cover their infirmities. Not to imitate them, not to be like them in evil, but also don't be a hypocrite who points out that they're a hypocrite too. Because guess what? You are too. If you have godly parents, follow them in good, cover their infirmities, love and honor them, choosing their virtues in which they excel, in avoiding the vices to which they are plagued and infirmed. And to all. Hear what Matthew Henry says. Many that have been well educated and have conducted themselves well while they were under their parents' eye, when they have gone abroad into the world and set up for themselves, have proved bad. Let none therefore be secure, either in themselves or theirs, but depend upon divine grace. Did you hear that, kids? You might do just fine while mommy and daddy are watching you, but there's a day they'll stop watching you. You must not become secure, he says, in yourself, but what must you do? You must depend on the grace of God. You must look to his hand to save you and to keep you. Henry goes on to note, Many that have done well in a state of meanness and subjection have been spoiled by preferment and power. Honors change men's minds and too often for the worse. Have we ever seen this? Oh, I've never seen. Yes, you have. A person says, oh, I would never do such evil things. And then they get a position of power. And what do they do? They do all the evil things they said they weren't going to do. Did you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a conservative justice before she got on the Supreme Court? What sort of justice was she after she got on the Supreme Court? Rotten, wicked, communist. That's what she was. But before, she seemed pretty good. Because what? She didn't have the power to abuse. She said, well, I'm subject to a Supreme Court. I better just kind of tread lightly here. Stay within my bounds. Oh, now I get to make laws? Ooh, this is great. Samuel's sons might have been fine outside of the public limelight. Put them in the public limelight and they are corrupt. The temptations overwhelm them. They cannot handle it. Perhaps Samuel should have inquired of the Lord. But God has a purpose even in the sins of men. They come, the elders come to Ramah. And they say, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. They have a worldly desire to be like the heathen. But do you know that the Bible tells us the wrath of man shall praise God? 
and the remainder of wrath he will restrain. If it's not for his glory, he's going to make sure it doesn't happen and burst out beyond bounds. God rules even over the sins of men. Maybe Samuel was negligent with his sons. His sons certainly abuse their office and are ruled by their desires. The elders have an evil attitude. The people of Israel, they want eh, just to sit there and have somebody go fight their battles for them. They're lazy. They're effeminate. Are those things good? No, none of them are good. But they're going to have a king, aren't they? His name will be Saul. What's going to happen to him? God's going to lower him and he's going to raise up who? David. And who's going to come out of David's loins? Who's going to have the promises given to him? Who's going to have a testament and a covenant granted to his seed forevermore? David. Do you see how God works all things together for good? Even the wickedness of men, even us benefiting from the foolishness of Samuel's sons. God works all things for his glory and the good of his people. Even their sins are ordered by a wise and kind providence. Let us then rejoice that God restrains man's wrath, that he orders the worst of things to the best of ends, and that he works all for our good. Verses 6 through 9, we have Samuel presenting this request to God in displeasure and God judging Israel by granting them their request. The thing displeased Samuel, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord. This is very good. Now, the, the word displeased means for a person to shake or to quiver, either in anger or fear or amazement. Yet notice, in the midst of his passion, we might say, he wants to know the mind of God. This is admirable. We should not become unruly in our passions. We should rather rule them. And so he goes to the Lord. He prays to him. Let us learn from this example. God says to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean 24 hours a day. That means every time an occasion presents itself for you to ask God, to praise God, to repent of your sins, that you do it right away without ceasing. You're ready on a moment's notice to pray to God. Here, passion overtakes. He's displeased by their request. He prays. This is an example for us. Let us learn to do likewise. They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, the Lord tells him, that I should not reign over them. Now, it's important to understand what exactly this means. Do you remember in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4? He tells us that if we are friends of the world, what are we? Enemies of God. Because friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. So now look at the Israelites. They say, we want to be like whom? Like what? The heathen. We don't want to be like what God told us. We want to be like these wicked people. So that means by wanting to be by the wicked or like the wicked, we're fighting against God. We're rejecting God. That's what they're doing. Now this is a figure of speech very common in the Hebrew Old Testament, known as an ellipsis. It's where you leave something out. You leave it out so that the mind of the person says, wait a second, you, you didn't say exactly what you meant. You left a word out. And then that word hits you with the force that you have to think about it instead of it just being fed to you. They have not rejected the only. 
but they have also and principally rejected me, the word only being left out. Did they reject Samuel? Yes, they did reject him. But that's not their big sin. Their big sin, their principal sin is they have rejected God by fighting against him, by wanting to be like worldly people. And God reminds Samuel, think about their history. Is this some surprise? Is this some shock? According to all their works, which they have done, well, the last couple of weeks. No, since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherein they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now that is very interesting. Because they are wicked idolaters of both the first and the second commandments, there are two types of idolatry. The first commandment idolatry is to have a different object for your worship. The second type of idolatry is to have a different means of worship. You could actually worship the true God in a false way. That's the second commandment. But many people commit idolatry by both. They join them both together. Here notice, what kind of idolatry did the Israelites commit? Well, they forsook God and they served idols, that is, images. That's first and second commandment, idolatry. And so, what do you expect of a person who's an idolater? What do you expect of a person who worships graven images? Do you expect that they will honor proper civil authorities? No. No. We should not expect that in the least. And this is precisely why God puts the magistrate in charge of such matters to punish those who commit idolatry. Because if they don't respect God and his worship, you think they're going to respect you and your goods or your life or your name or your children? You think they're going to care one whit for your rights? No. So do they also unto thee, Samuel. They will not listen to lawful civil government if they won't listen to the king of kings. Let us ignore, let us rebuke, let us laugh to scorn the notion of human rights without God's rights. Let us ignore it, let us rebuke it, let us realize how utterly ridiculous it is and laugh it to scorn. Somehow you want man, God's image, to have rights and God has none. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. And we see it in our day, don't we? What becomes of your rights that you don't even have? They're nothing. Why? Because God is not feared. Nobody fears the living God. Oh, we can just have a nice secular civil government where everybody's rights are protected and respected. No, you can't. And we do not. And so God, in his wrath, gives them a king. Hearken unto their voice, verse 9. God gave them a king in his wrath, Hosea 13, 11. Psalm 106, 15 says this. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Did you know that God answers prayer for reprobates because he hates them? And he gives them exactly what it is that they want so that it will destroy them. That's what happened when they said, give us meat. We're sick of this manna. God said, sure, you can have some quail. 
Then he filled their mouth with quail, and the wrath of God came down on them while the birds were in their mouth. God says to Israel, you can have a king, sure, because I hate you, and you're wicked, and you're disobedient, and I'm judging you. Just because prayers are answered does not mean God is pleased. Providence may seem to bless where the law curses, but we must not judge blessings based off of providence. We judge blessings based off of law. Is this in accordance with what my master commands me because I must be faithful to him? That's blessing. Not merely having what it is we want in this life. We must judge of providence by the divine law and not vice versa. So tell them that they will get a king, but protest solemnly unto them. Or literally, protesting protest unto them, as the Hebrew has it. Show them again and again, right to their face. That's what the word protest means. You go towards someone solemnly swearing a thing. That's why we are Protestants. We went toward the papacy and Charles V, and we said things to them solemnly about the word of God. So he's required to do here. Protesting, protest unto them. Solemnly protest unto them. Show them the manner of their king. Now the word manner is the same word mishpat, which we saw with Eli's son, their custom, their privilege. They lawlessly exercised. God has delivered mishpatim, his statutes, his customs, his manners in his law. That's what people should do. In fact, God had a manner for the king in his commandments in Deuteronomy 17. That was his mishpat. But here Samuel is taught to teach them, here, this is the mishpat of your king. This is his custom, his privilege, his right. As the people then, so the prince. Lawless people, lawless princes. Impious people, tyrannical magistrates. Oh, we hate tyranny. Oh, no one's going to tread on me. Well, you tread on God's holiness, so what do you expect? You're lawless people. People in the United States are lawless and wicked and disobedient, and they say, God bless America. Think he's going to do it? Think he's going to listen? Think he's going to bless? Think again. As the people, so the prince. Here's the manner of your king, you lawless people. Here's the kind of magistrate you can expect. Our people in America do not truly desire the cure for our national rot. We desire what? Money? Property? Rights? Do we want to honor God? Do we want to honor our belly? We want our belly God to be honored, our stuff. Our money, our rights, not God's rights. Let us protest solemnly to our generation and people, to the Commonwealth of Virginia and this whole federal monster called the United States, to a sleeping church, what the manner of our king shall be. Now let me ask you, are our magistrates worse than what we read about in this passage? Oh, you bet they are. You think they're content with 10% of your produce? <laughs> no, you're not, not even. Social Security takes 15.3% of your income. You think 10% is good enough for them? Of course not. Okay, 
So if we have tyranny so much worse than theirs, what does that tell you about us as a people? We're sparkling examples of virtue, of course. No, we are worse than the people of Israel. We can prattle all we will of patriotism and our goodness and our cause and our history and blah, blah, blah. But until we repent of our sins, we will continue with the judgments. Samuel then protests God's judgment against a lawless Israel in verses 10 through 18. Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people. Do you remember when Samuel was a little child? You remember when he had the dream and the vision? And Eli had to charge him, tell me everything or God curse you. What did Samuel do? Told him everything, didn't he? He said all the truth. Every single thing he spoke was precisely what God had told him. Has he changed much? No, he's still a man of truth. Lying children produce lying adults. Truth-speaking children produce truth-speaking adults. So learn to speak the truth. But notice here the curses. He will take your sons. Ah, that's man-stealing. Yeah, pretty much. But he has some kind of quasi-legal claim on them now. Because you said you wanted a king who would fight your battles for you. So now he gets to confiscate, snatch away. Remember when they went and took the women at Shiloh? They snatched them away. That's the same word. He's going to come and snatch your sons away. Military conscription. Quasi-man stealing. They're not gonna, your sons aren't going to bless you and enrich you. They're going to bless him and enrich him. They're going to ear his ground and reap his harvest. Ah, you got them all the way from spring when you ear the ground until the harvest in the fall. He's got them year-round, basically, because they're going to make tools for him. When do you make tools? In the summer? You wait till the winter. You go under shelter and you got the heat and it keeps you warm. He's going to make tools in the winter. Then he's going to be working and planting in the spring. Then he's going to be weeding throughout the summer. Then he's going to harvest in the fall. When are you going to get to see your sons? Never. What are they going to do for you? Nothing. Why? Because you wanted this king. He's, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. You can have my sons. Don't touch my girls. No, he's going to take them too. They're going to be his confectionaries. They're going to make perfumes for this guy. That's what a confectionery does. He's going to take them to be his bakers. Oh, they're going to have feasts. They're going to have perfume. They're going to be living it up while your girls do nothing for you. That's what he's saying. Then he's going to take your land. He's going to take the best of your olive yards and your vineyards. Oh, we need this for um, public purposes. We're going to have to exercise our eminent domain. You got to go. Give me the land. And who's going to get it? His servants, not you. You don't get your land. He gets it. All his rent-seeking servants, all his devotees and courtiers, all his crony capitalists. Oh, these need uh, purposes of state. You got you to gotta give us the land. It's ours now. What are you going to say? No. What's he going to do? Throw you in jail? Kill you? He's even going to take your slaves, your men servants, your maid servants, your goodliest, the best of your slaves, and your asses, your animals. All that you do to produce on your farm, he takes for himself. He takes a tithe, 10% of your seed, of your vineyards. 
He gives it to his officers. Here there's the income tax, his pork projects, his eunuchs. That's the word officer. This is humiliating. The eunuchs get my stuff? Yeah. The bureaucrats get your stuff. That's right. He'll take the tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants. A tithe of your increase in animals and in produce, slavery being the end condition. I note then these marks of tyranny. Male and female conscription, income tax, eminent domain, eating out the substance and wealth of the people, a political class of eunuchs that profit from your loss, crony capitalism, weakening of the family power and wealth. If we're not under tyranny, I'm not sure what we're under. If we're not an idolatrous nation, I'm not sure what kind of nation we are. God demands repentance. God says, turn from your lawless ways. Do you remember they just had a revival? You see how quickly these things vanish away? It takes hard work, diligent work, trusting in God's promises, doing His will. Is that what they did? No. Ye shall cry out in that day. You'll howl as an animal in pain. You'll cry out for help. God, help me. And what does he say? Help yourself. You didn't want me to be your king. I'm not coming to deliver you anymore. Figure it out yourself. The Lord will not hear you in that day. The Westminster Annotations note, You shall cry out unto the Lord for help and deliverance. He will not regard your prayers because by your obstinate willfulness ye would need run the hazard after ye had had such fair warning. Let us heed God's warnings, lest he not hear us at the latter end. Israel then, in heathen envy and stubborn insistence, chooses their king, or has the right to choose their king granted to them, and verses 19 through 22. The people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. Verse 19. They say, nay, we want to be like all the nations. We have worldly priorities and desires. And we want, furthermore, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We don't want to work hard. We just want to sit on the couch. We just want to have a good time. Send some professional army off to serve in our place. They'll fight our battles for us. I don't want to go do this. They had former victories. They had times of peace. Do you remember in chapter 7? It said they had peace with the Amorites. And the Philistines left them alone. Do you think there's some connection between this and that? Because I assure you there is. When people have peace, they become weak. They become soft. They become effeminate, the men do, and they run after their own pleasures rather than the service of God, and now they just want someone to go fight for them. Samuel then rehearses the elders' words in verses 21 and 22 to God, and God judges them by granting them their, de their desire, and all are sent home. And thus far, the exposition of 1 Samuel chapter 8, a sad history in the people of God's 
books.